it's here. Peloton's best offer of the season. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton tread. Choose from accessories like a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, yoga blocks, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. Hurry, Peloton's best offer of the season is here, but not for long. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access memberships separate. Limited time offer cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to Breaking Geek Rare, the podcast, the premier flagship and international podcast of LRM Online. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, and this week I've got a fun interview for you with Patrick Aryu. He is a broadcaster and conservationist, and right now he is hosting a show on Curiosity Stream, and it's called Evolve. It's a fun show. Uh, if you're interested in watching the video, it's up on Genreverse's YouTube channel. But it's a great show. It shows you how... The really cool animals that live in nature can actually help us save ourselves and humanity and the things that we can learn from it. It's a really fun time. I had a great time talking to him. We also have another show coming for you guys, uh, hopefully later this weekend, so be on the lookout for that. But it's going to be special. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm really excited for you to hear the second one as well. But in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Patrick about his show on Curiosity called Evolve. billion years. That is how long nature has been solving problems. Camels are masters of retaining water. Nature doesn't do anything by accident. Evolving. Through us, they've got one of the strangest body plans of any animal on the planet. Specializing, they really do fly through the air. Quite surprising for the fastest land-based animal. Perfecting the shark and what it's been able to accomplish is unbelievable. I got the need for speed. Oh yeah, baby. When it comes to the space flight, our physiology just isn't adapted. Big breaths of air. Are there any more lessons that we can learn from birds? I've never seen wings like that before. We're going to find a way to make the cancer light up. Oh, there we go. Oh, look at that. It can regrow eyes, parts of its spinal cord, and even some areas of its brain. Somewhere in that DNA. I'm super excited to have you here with me. one of the things I have to tell you about your show is like your excitement for what you're doing is infectious. So watching you be excited about these things got me excited to interview you. So I'm very nice. happy to have you here. Thank you. Awesome. Brandon, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, looking forward to having a little um, chit chat, as you say here in London. Okay. I'm ready for a chit chat. A little chin wag. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, The first thing I wanted to talk to you about with this Mm. show is one of the things that interested me the most about is there there are lots of uh, nature shows out there and things of that nature. But what you do that's unique and interesting to me that I hadn't seen a lot was Mm. you do the so what very well, right? Like you take it from, hey, yeah, these are cool animals and here's what they can do. But here's how we can apply it to our Mm. lives. Can you Mm. tell me about that a little bit, please? Um, I guess that kind of comes from... Uh, just me being a, a bit of a curious, um, having a bit of a curious mind anyway. Uh, I kind of 
I feel like I've traced it back to my childhood. Um, when I was a kid, I used to love watching nature documentaries and science documentaries. Uh, to me, it just seemed like this amazing um, window into what the world would look like in the future. So, and I was, I'm also a massive fan of sci-fi. So for me, it was like real life sci-fi, you know, yeah. like whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek, I'm, like, I'm, I'm looking at what, you know, these, these sci-fi gadgets are going to be real soon, which when we look at these glass plated um, yeah. devices, which you put your thumb on and it recognizes your face recognition, like, you know, it, it's pretty impressive. Uh, there was a show in the UK that ran mainly in the nineties called tomorrow's world. And in that show, they, that that's where they kind of showed what would, what kind of technology might end up um, becoming real in tomorrow's world. And I remember watching the, 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 the two stories that always kind of stuck with me. One, which they were talking about stem cells of being able to help us regenerate human organs. Uh, and then the second was this mysterious thing called broadband internet, um, which <laughs> is of course showing my age, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we now call it fiber or just Wi-Fi, just you know, an internet. Just don't speed. call it 5G, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, um, and I remember watching that show thinking, you know, this was back in the day when we had 56K dial-up or whatever it was called. Right. And, um, and, and you could, it was like, you could see this picture downloading like doop, doop, doop. And that was super fast back then because before it would literally kind of almost a couple of centimeters line by line. Um, and so, yeah, I love shows like that. Um, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, you know, kind of show. And so I've always, like I said, I've always had a, a bit of a curious mind. So, you know, fast forward to, to me having this, this opportunity, having built my career up to this point where I can now travel the world and tell amazing stories and share that excitement with people like you and your audience um, and people around the world, quite frankly, I, I, I just, I absolutely love that. And, and that kind of curious mind or that curiosity then you know, encourages me to, to also work with the team. You know, it's, it's not just myself that makes these right. shows. I'm working with a, with a production team um, and we're kind of figuring out what the editorial will be. But it is always about like, okay, so let's just take it one step further. And because beauty and awe is one thing, but once you, you kind of give people a reason to want to care um, and also just like something, a, a, a little like kind of dot, 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 so that, people go and do their own research. Now you're starting to inspire people. Now you're starting to, to open people's minds and change the way that they think and also how they see the world. So um, I'm glad that I had that effect on you. It's, it is pretty uh, exciting to be out in the wild and, and seeing these incredible animals for sure. Yeah. Um, and you talk about doing your own research. One of the things that uh, I did after watching your show was biomimicry. It was something like, as soon as I, I heard you say, I was like, oh, yeah, I understand what that is, but I wanted to see it more. Um, and I, I had no idea how big of a deal it was just in the industry because I, I feel like I don't, I don't recognize it for being what it is. For real. Yeah, 100%. I, 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 I totally get you there. And it's biomimicry. I, I've known about biomimicry for a while now, actually. Um, and that's how I got into the show. I was asked to do a podcast, which is called 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter, which then led to the book, 
30 animals that made us smarter. Um, and that also then led to us making this documentary evolve. Um, but yeah, biomimicry is this really incredible and, and fascinating study essentially of how we can look towards mother nature to solve some of our human problems. Um, and you might ask, okay, what, why do we need to look towards nature? You know, humans are one of the most, if not the most, arguably the most intelligent species on the planet. Well, we in our kind of modern technological advanced era have only been around for a sliver of the lifetime of planet earth. I'd say our, our most technologically advanced age is probably the last hundred years. You might say if you're kind of being a bit generous, maybe the last thousand years, you might go a bit further. Um, but when you consider that the planet earth is what 4.5 billion years old sure. and life itself is 3.8 billion years old. And I didn't say million, I said billion years old. So that is an enormous amount of time research and development time um, to, to, for, for Mother Nature, for the species, the various species that have existed on this planet, um, some many of which have, have gone extinct, but many of which are still here today and our ancestors of, of, of uh, other species, um, they've worked out some really nifty and interesting ways of overcoming challenges. So we've got this kind of three, what I like to call Mother Nature's blueprints, just like the, the solution is has been there in plain sight this whole time so to be able to kind of unpack some of those stories see the animals and then figure out how the science kind of weaves into that um it's awesome i i, I i'm using this kind of analogy for people that aren't too sure maybe what biomimicry is um think about velcro velcro is used in all sorts of um clothing and and, and outwear uh, it's using all sorts of um, products. Uh, that came about through the, the inventor actually uh, was inspired by seeing a, a type of seed that has these hooks on it. And he'd, he'd go for walks with his dog and, and his dog would always come back home with these all these seeds like hooked into its hair. And that was the inspiration to design those two separate parts, one with wow. tiny hooks and one with kind of these loops, which would then just stick together. Um, so that... I think is probably the one of the first iterations that people can really connect with. And, oh, right. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, but now in, there, there are so many different applications from shark skin technology, helping us to uh, reduce the number of secondary infections in hospitals, which costs millions of dollars each year and also costs people's lives. Cheetahs, uh, legs being, in, uh, being the inspiration for for um, Paralympic runner, runner blades uh, or running blades, I should say. There are na Namib beetles, beetles in, in the Namib desert, which have these strange bumpy shells, which allow water to, or fog water to coalesce on their shells out of thin air. They're in the desert, but they can literally collect water out of thin air. What else? I'm trying to think of some cool ones. There's a great story some about giraffe. squid ring Sorry, teeth. Oh, okay. yeah, giraffes. So you've got squid ring teeth, or, or a protein that's found in squid helping us to to come up with different materials and fibers for textiles and also plastic free glues and you mentioned the giraffe uh, which you know when we look at that animal to me they've always been they've always represented the most one of the the strangest and i would almost say prehistoric looking animals right they do look like they belong in jurassic park sure <laughs> 
And so, and when you see them in real life, you're like, oh, oh, a giraffe. Like, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty spectacular animals. Yeah, they are. Um, and so specific to that, you, so you've talked about um, the beetle and the giraffe. Mm. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you is some of the stuff that you did for the show is pretty harrowing. Um, and you, you haven't talked about it so far. So you flew in a jet. Uh, you went out there with tiger sharks, you, you know, you, you, you went hunting for scorpions and mm. me watching this. I'm like, Hey brother, this is the part of the movie where I'm like, Hey, you need to stop. I'm like this is a horror movie where it's like, stop. Um, the question I have for you about, it, did you feel any fear? Was it harrowing to you? Or was it just like, how did you feel about it? Uh, okay, I, I got, I've got multiple answers and thoughts to this, but I'll try and oh, keep them as, as succinct as possible and as focused as possible. So, you know, I've ne- I, when I was younger, you know, you always imagine that you'll be an explorer one day. Um, I think all kids do. But then reality sets in and, you know, we kind of go to our nine to five jobs. You know, I, I, had, I had a job in a, in a shoe shop when I, was, when I was younger and then worked in student bars and, um, you know, worked in offices for a little bit, um, but eventually kind of, you know, through some um, ingenuity and looking for um, the right opportunities and just hard work, managed to get into wildlife TV at the BBC NHU. And uh, eventually after five years behind the camera, I was able to, to get my big break on screen. So at that point, I'm like, I have this incredible opportunity in front of me to, to really see the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you're, you're, you're a, um, uh, you work in the military, you're a service person. I, I don't know what, what the right terminology is. Um, that works. Service personnel, is that right? Let's go, let's go. Service, <laughs> member, service <laughs> member. You're a service member, you work for the military. So, so you, you know, even um, for, for most people, you, you travel quite a lot and you get to see a lot of the world. And I think you might be able to relate to this and, and many people who are in, in a similar position, um, regardless of what, what sector of work they, they're, they're in. Once you, you, even just from a kind of traveling perspective and you start seeing the world, you, it starts to broaden your, your horizons. It starts to, you start to see how we are around the world. We're so, so similar. Everyone's trying to do the same thing, which right. is carve out a little space for themselves and, and have a little family, maybe have some fun and get a little nest egg and, you know, just, just, gain some sort of happiness in, the, in this world. And so by traveling, you, it, it, you start to feel a bit more of a connection with other people from different nations. And um, so same thing with when you, once you're kind of out in the wild and you're seeing these animals, first of all, you get to see these spectacular landscapes where there's oceans, pastel blue um, uh, skies. You've got these incredible cliffs, sand dunes, um, jungles, forests. And you're just like, wow, it's, it's like, it's more than HD. It's more than 4K. This is right. like, wow. And then you get to have these um, crazy, cool animal encounters. And I have to say, like, there, there's, there is a part of me that does get a little bit scared or apprehensive. Um, and I suppose in those moments, I've, I've been asked this so many times, and I don't know, maybe it's a kind of Dr. Doolittle thing, you know, but there is something where you can, with, with, not with all animals, but with, with some, with many animals, you can, you can get a sense of how they're feeling 
if you pay attention to their body language. Mm -hmm. And the comparison that I give is, you know, you, you might meet another human being who doesn't speak the same language as you, but you can tell from their body language, maybe just the tone of how they're sounding, what you can get a sense of, of, of how safe you are, whether they want to be in your presence, whether they're, they want to be left alone, whether they're curious about you, you can get a sense of that. Of course, in my case, this is like interspecies, like communication, but certainly for monkeys, for big cats, you can see usually the, the first um, reaction with, with, with those types of animals is, is a bit of apprehensiveness. They're trying to work out if you're a threat. And so my body movements are always slow slow body movements, no intimidating looks, not staring directly at, you know, a, a black bear. Um, you kind of just slow, maybe head down, but paying attention. Don't turn your back. Um, if you need to walk away, you back away whilst facing the animal. Sure. All of these small things, it, it, that, that's, you, you're kind of working at their level. So you kind of, and then after the kind of curiosity, then comes kind of more rough play sometimes. And that's when, for me, I know that's the point where I need to, to, to stop the interaction. We separate, leave them to do their thing, um, and then maybe we kind of meet again. With animals like sharks or scorpions, you don't necessarily have those cues. So it is a, it's, a, it's a bit, it's far trickier than, than with, um, with mammals. Uh, and in those cases, I'm, I'm hyper vigilant and hyper aware. So let's take the bull shark that we were, was it tiger shark? No, bull shark, the bull shark bull that shark. we um, that we reeled in. Uh, we were at, in Fort Myers and we wanted to get a, an impression of the shark skin. The shark skin is made up of all these dermal denticles, tiny, tiny tooth-like scales. Um, and the, the, the cool thing about these scales is that bacteria find it really hard to, to stick onto the surface of their skin. Um, and so... You know, you can, scientists are now looking at ways of taking that shark skin pattern and making an, impre an impression on different types of films, which you can then stick onto uh, high contact surfaces and hospitals to reduce the number of bacterial infections that are passed on to other people. So that's why we were, we were trying to get this um, shark in to, to get a, a skin impression, tag it, get some a blood sample for, for the researchers. And in that moment, it's, you know, I've spent, we spent about six, seven hours on the beach. We were, it was a half an hour. We, we, we were told that we would have a shot really early in the afternoon. And um, in the end, it got to about nine o'clock and we were like, if it gets to 10, we're going to have to call it. And because we're, we're literally every story, every day, every day brings a new story. <clears throat> and so we, and we're on the road. So we, we've got plans for the next day. So it's a 9, 10, 9, 15, 9, 20, 9, 25. We're like, I'm, I'm literally, I've got my feet up <laughs> like by one of the, the cabins and we're just like, this is not going to happen. 9.30, boom, like an alarm. We've got these kind of balloons, these glow, glow up balloons, um, these, uh, these balloons which have these tiny lights in them. So they're connected to the fishing line. And as soon as that fishing line goes, you just see this, this glowing balloon shaking around yeah. like, okay, shark, shark, shark. So everybody runs down, camera's on. Okay, make sure I'm mic'd up. And the adrenaline is boof, boof, coursing through your body. You've got just like, oh, this is going to work. So, oh my God. And you're thinking, like, I'm thinking in my head, okay, what are all the facts that I need to, 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 to have, like literally on the tip of my tongue? Because it's not just about, wow, 
the right. key with these with these moments is you have to say wow but with information you know and and that's quite challenging um to do that because you just want to go wow oh my god that's rad that's cool oh my god that's dope awesome and you, you know i do say that but you're kind of running through what are the key facts but then also sometimes those facts might change depending on what you're seeing or what happens so all of this is going on you're having to kind of manage this like there's a conductor in my head apparently you know um and so this this shark comes in and that, at that moment you're you, I, I'm just saying it out loud as I'm going, like, I'm just saying to the camera guys, the, the, um, the crew, the ladies, the guys, be careful. There's a shark reminding everyone because we all get excited. And before you know it, someone's literally right next to the shark thinking that it's because, because, so, okay, let me rewind a little bit before I continue. <laughs> as, <laughs> you see that now I'm getting excited. <laughs> so we've got to the, the, one of the safest ways to bring the sharks in is to actually fish for them. So we have these hooks uh, these lures and, and bait set out and they try and go for the bait. So they, um, uh, they get hooked in and that's when we start reeling them in. We've got these massive, super strong um, uh, rods. Um, sure. I think you can use them to, to catch tarpon and, you know, other powerful fish. And so I'm really, really this, this, this shark in dripping with sweat and finally comes to the shore. And, and that's the safest way because you, you, once they're on the shore, you, you get onto their back, take the hook out of, of their mouth. Um, and then you can literally just get, um, put the, the tag in, which goes <clears throat> at the base of the dorsal fin, um, draw some blood. And then we could do our, uh, our skin impression with some, with a type of putty. Um, and so by doing it that way, you're able to get the shark onto land quickly um, Sit on, sit on it. I was, it was basically like a shark rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine a shark rodeo, and that's what we were getting up to. Um, but I, I also had to double check that that was ethical as well. So you're, there's so many different layers to this. I don't want people, if if that wasn't the right way to do that, I wouldn't want to be doing something which would then encourage other people seeing the show to go and do. So in the name of science and in the name of research, that is the the, the most um easiest and least stressful way to capture tag uh, and tag a shark. So that's why I was sat on the back of this bull shark. And um, in those moments, and, and like, I'm, I'm on this shark and you can just feel that it's, as far as sharks go, and when I think of a shark, many people think of a shark, you think of a huge, great white shark. Right. This was a relatively small bull shark. Bull sharks do get big. Um, about four foot long, five foot long but not that wide about like this wide which is still quite big for a shark so when you see on it when i was on it you just feel like the raw power, power of this animal yeah. just like whoa so like let's get get on it and <laughs> at one point someone was stood literally about a foot away from its mouth and it's like i'm like guys back the <laughs> up <laughs> like this is real come on so in those moments you're, you're also Sometimes you don't have the same cues as you do with mammals. Um, also, it depends on the situation. For example, um, uh, marine biologist, uh, what's her name? Ocean Ramsey. Um, she's one of few people who have built up the enough experience to swim in open water with a whole variety of sharks, including great whites. And when you see, if you've never heard of Ocean Ramsey, type a name into Instagram or into YouTube, Google, and you'll see a whole bunch of amazing, incredible footage of her just in the water and these massive great whites, all varieties of sharks, 
coming up to her and she's just swimming like just relaxed calm in the water and it comes up to her hand comes out and then just a little like palm off and the, the shark kind of rolls its eyes it's all it's like it's almost like they're dogs of the, of the sea and the yeah. ocean and i think there's something to be said for when you see that that those images the same way when you see people hanging out with bears or wolves you're like or lions you're like i i thought that this was not possible so it tells you that there is a level of communication that we can have with some of the most fearsome and ferocious animals out there, which then allows us to tap into their psyche and see the gentler side. And, um, and having that connection between an animal and, and, and a human is, is it's something quite special, for sure. It is. Um, and you, you talked about the ethics of what you do. And I really like, um, there were a couple of instances like with the snake and with the scorpion. And now you're talking about the shark where you, you said out loud, Hey, here are the reasons why I'm doing this. And this is why this is safe. So that was very cool. Yeah. hundred percent. That there's, um, yeah. So we, you mentioned the scorpion that was, we were trying to um, find a death stalker scorpion. Um, ironically named so because it's um, the scientists discovered that the venom in its stinger, uh, extremely venomous, uh, has the ability that this really strange ability to bind onto um, cancerous brain cells. So it's really interesting that they have this, for some reason, they have the ability, one, to cross the blood-brain barrier <laughs> got that out <laughs> the blood brain barrier um which is this protective layer around the brain um which which keeps the which protects the brain from infection um, but it has the ability to cross that and it has high specificity for these cancerous brain cells so what scientists have been able to do is take that molecule and i i, I they may actually synthesize a, a homologue of that of that molecule, um, and then they attach a fluorescent dye to the, the 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 compound, the specific compound that's found in the venom. So what that does is the the, the venom sticks when it's applied to to, to um, uh, an open brain during brain surgery. It sticks specifically only to the cancerous cells. And now it's got that fluorescent dye molecule attached to it to form this, this new molecule. Um, you can then shine a, 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 a light, I believe it's a UV light, which then, boom, allows the cancerous cells to glow in the dark like a Christmas tree. And so surgeons now have a, 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 a far easier task, which like, being a brain surgeon, like one of the toughest Whatever jobs in the world. Makes it easier. Right. And so they can not only does that make their jobs easier, but it also means that the patient is less likely to have healthy brain tissue removed because that's the sure. that's really the big deal. Trying to take out all the bad stuff whilst leaving all the good stuff in. Um, so that's why we were looking for that death stalker. So the death stalker actually has a potential to, to save, you know, thousands of people's lives. <laughs> and so we're in Jordan in the desert trying to find these these scorpions in the pitch black. And the only way to find them is to turn off all the, the, uh, the production lights. Cause we, we've got like, you know, lights there so we can film sure. in the dark, but to turn them all off and then you've got your UV light on and you're shining and like looking around and trying to figure out where these things are. Then like, can you crouch down and look in there? And you're like, okay, cool. You're like, what if there's a snake in there? You know, <laughs> there could be other animals that, that um, might jump out at you. So you're always trying to be on guard, but getting to see 
that death stalker was was really really uh, quite incredible fascinating body structure you see the pincers um the paddy peps the, the 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 five segments of its tail and then then that stinger um so that was that was awesome we did the same thing a similar thing in in namibia where we were looking for the uh, a peringis adder um again another venomous snake it has it has this really interesting um behavior which it, when you look at its its head you'll notice that its eyes are aren't in the typical location like on the side of its head like most snakes but it's slightly kind of oriented on the top sure. of its head and the reason that its body plan is like that is because it has this ability to just wriggle its body and then all the sand just kind of comes onto the top and all you can see literally are just those eyes just on the top but of course uh, a gecko or a lizard that's running across the sand will have a hard time spotting that snake and boom, an ambush predator. They just nail the, the, their prey, inject them in venom, uh, inject them with the venom. Um, and then it's kind of curtains for, for that lizard um, or for their prey. Uh, but yeah, again, um, in that instance, we were looking at its movement. So it wasn't so much about venom, but more so about their movement. They're known as sidewinders because they have this, and, and many of your um, listeners and viewers might have seen this before, like the impressions that they leave in the sand. They they have this uh, remarkable ability to be able to climb really steep sand dunes. And so in, in the show Evolve, you see me and and uh, and the um, the guide that I'm with, we try and run up a sand dune and literally about five steps in, you're like, what, we, what am I doing? Because you go like two steps up, one step back, two steps right. up, one step back. Um, whereas a snake has the, has the ability or has evolved to um, move in such a way that, they, that they're kind of going up and down. There's two waves of motion kind of going up and down like that horizontally and also vertically. So vertically, horizontally, I can't remember which way round it is. Um, and so the combination of that means that they are, they are putting just the right amount of um, pressure per surface area, the right, the, just the right amount of force per surface area, like just the smallest contact patch on the, on the ground. And then they lift their bodies up and, and kind of forward. And then they have this kind of r- kind of wriggling, um, sidewinding motion, which means they can climb up these sand dunes really quickly. And scientists are looking at ways of developing robots that mimic this this movement. And the hope is that either we can use these robots to better explore um, hard, uh, difficult uh, terrain, for example, on, on planet Mars, or we could use them when in in times of natural disasters during an earthquake tsunami maybe there's a um a, 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 an issue with a nuclear reactor where we need to have really specific where there's the you know it when there's lots of rubble when there's uh, when buildings are, are kind of potentially going to fall down you want to make make sure that you have a, a device a robot that can literally access the smallest of spaces um so I mean, if you were you know a miner that was trapped in in a cave and you saw this robot snake, you might think twice. You'd be like, mm, I'm not sure what's going on here. <laughs> but it does. Um, it, it's it's really cool actually how these scientists have been able to create these robot snakes that move just like the sidewinder does in the media. Sure. Super fascinating. Um, and as you talk about that. 
what I also like about the show is that the people that you find to talk about these things are just as excited as you are about, you know, what they've discovered. So the gentleman with the death stalker, the doctor, um, he got a tattoo of the molecule or Uh, the, um, the, the gentleman you're talking about with the snake, the sidewinder Mm -hmm. robot, they were using like a PlayStation controller to, uh, to control that. And Actually, and I wanted to talk to you about that. One of the things that kind of blew my mind that you said when you were talking to him about the Sidewinder robot was um, you were trying to show how you go from one state of movement where it's just kind of wriggling and it's burying itself where you haven't perfected that motion that the Sidewinder stake is able to do. But as you're giving it different parameters and making it move in a different way, then you get that movement. And the thing that you said that kind of blew me away was what we've just done is hundreds, if not thousands of years of evolution, just in changing those parameters. And that, I was like, wow, like that mm-hmm. really just kind of opened my mind up to, uh-huh. to almost everything that you're doing with the show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In that. So to, to explain a bit further, like this, this robot, we can, like you're saying, you can change the parameters so you can make it, make, make it so that the, the wave uh, of movement is only kind of is, is flat is a flat wave like this. And so similar to when it wants to bury itself, if your robot does that, it will just move the sand around and then eventually go into the sand. Likewise, if you have the snake just going up and down like this, it just kind of flops on itself and doesn't go anywhere. But if you're able to combine those movements, almost like a like a helical kind of shape, you know, all of a sudden, then you just then it, you hit the sweet spot, and then it starts to move forward. Um, that that ratio of of kind of horizontal to vertical movement will change depending on the angle of the of the terrain that it's trying to climb up, and also will change on depending on the weight of the robot snake and also the, the the substrate the actual material or the type of ground that it that it's on um but yeah literally i i'm it, you're right it, it, in that just by making that slight adjustment beep, beep, you know you go up twice on the on the controller um, and all of a sudden it just hits that moment and that is literally hundreds thousands if not millions of years of evolution in what two or three clicks of a button which is crazy. fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'd like to change gears for a second and yeah, for talk sure. to you generally about your career. Um, okay. So you've kind of hinted at what you did behind the camera. Uh, mm. You were working with Sir David Attenborough, who has just been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Like that's- oh, Wow. I didn't even yeah. know. I've had Aha, my head down moves. and kind of yes. in press land for, uh, you know, for Evolve and, and, and writing up interviews and stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm super chuffed for him. Uh, certainly someone who's, who's deserving of that for sure. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I saw that you said was you wanted to uh, create a show that, that, that kind of had uh, what he did in terms of animal research and things of that nature. And then uh, Brian Cox, uh, mm. that level of curiosity. Yeah. And so my question is, how did you go from watching nature shows with your dad to doing this behind the scenes and now what you're doing now? The reason why I ask is because what I really liked about the show is I watched it with my kids and my son, no kidding, seven years old, points at the screen and goes, he looks like me. Oh, my daughter, my daughter, who's five, 
she was like, no, he looks like daddy. And, <laughs> and my son said, well, if I grow a beard, I can look like that. And so I, I really like, like without, oh. without saying it, like he is understanding the representation uh, that mm. you bring to the screen. And so I, I guess I, I would really like you to talk about your career and how you went from, because uh, I think you studied cancer, you did cancer research, right? Um, how do you go from, you know, where you were watching shows with your dad? Because I'm there, right? I'm there yes. Yes. to where you are now. Right. Okay. So I, I, I'll preface this by saying that uh, as far as if anybody is interested in getting involved in TV and, and specifically wants to be a presenter, I, I will please remind me once I tell you the story of how I did it, um, I would do it differently. And I think many people are doing that, you know, just, just look at what content creators are doing right now, which is sure. just, just post stuff on, on your phone and find a community. That's literally it. Uh, it it's far easier than it was 10 years ago. Um, in my case, yeah, I, 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 one of my earliest memories of, of seeing wildlife shows was watching lions, um, on the Savannah and my, my dad used to absolutely love it. And, um, yeah, that's, it's funny because it makes me think back. It's a shame because, you know, just to give you a little context, my, my parents divorced when I was quite young. Mm. So it was only, you, you found the right, um, article because it was one of the few times I kind of delved deep and actually tried to remember, like, what was my first memory or experiences of, of animals? There's actually an earlier one to do with uh, a, a, an orca called Winnie the Whale, who was who would do a, a shows at the Dolphinarium at a place called Windsor Safari Park uh, in West London, which which eventually, which is now turned into Legoland. Oh, nice. um, of cool. course. And so I remember being super, uh, that was probably one of my earliest memories of seeing such a huge animal. So kind of going back to what you were, uh, so I'm jumping around here, but just to give some context, um, what you were asking about, you know, are, are you not scared to be around the, uh, some of these dangerous animals? And I, I remember as a kid thinking, how is that person in the water with that massive whale? I want to do that. That that's, amazing he was like he and i think that he or she he and she they all the the trainers and instructors were launching in the air with these with these whales of course i wouldn't do that now we know better we we understand that these sentient beings need you know a lot of space to roam right. and they need to be free and, and and the ocean is their home they shouldn't be in captivity uh so there's that then there was you know watching lions all we wanted to do was watch lions lion documentaries i didn't care about at the time I didn't care about anything else. It was weird. Just had this weird obsession with lions, which I forgot about until, you know, a few years ago when, when I, uh, someone asked me uh, in that interview that you, that you're quoting now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, fast forward, I was always interested in science and how things work. And I think part of that is, you know, like I said, I, I really love sci-fi. I love the kind of fantastical, like the possibilities, what could be next. Um, and so I think that kind of made me want to find out more, you know, maybe I could be a mad scientist one day. And so, yeah, I kind of went down the, the path of, of science. I actually wanted to be an actor <laughs> when really? I was younger. Yeah. Uh, something which I'm kind of looking into uh, in the next couple of months. But my parents... Of course, typical African parents. They're like acting. No, 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 no. Science, science. <laughs> you are going to study science, eh? <laughs> Your parents want you to be a doctor. 
a lawyer, a finance businessman. <laughs> you know, bring some 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 peas back back home. And also, you know, your parents want you to, to have a much better and successful life than they had. You know, it's all about your each generation uh, has a better experience uh, of life. Um, and so science was what I kind of focused on academically, but I kept up with the performance and the theater, um, musical theater and stuff in my spare time. So as I got to my third year of uni, I was studying cancer biology, which is essentially molecular and cellular biology and genetics, which I really enjoyed. But I, I realized that I love the theory behind it, but the actual practice in the lab it is actually quite laborious, especially at the kind of university stage, because a lot of the things that we were doing, I think it was, it was good practice. You know, you're doing electrophoresis gels, which are amazing. You put like different, basically it's a way of telling how heavy bits of DNA and RNA are relative to each other. And so you can, you can find out really interesting, interesting information about different cells um, and doing PCR. So polymerase, polymerase chain reactions where you take a small amount of DNA uh, and you amplify it. So when when you think about what the CSI guys and girls do, when the yeah. forensic specialists, when they find that tiny bit of DNA, the, the key is that 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 tiny bit of DNA, that hair, that what whatever it may be, you need to make sure you package it, keep it safe, and then you take it to the lab. That's why they, it goes to the lab, and then they can take small samples, and then you can you can replicate that DNA, you can make more of it, um, and it will, and so then you can test it and find out uh, who the suspect was, who the, who the killer was. Or if, if you're watching Jerry Springer, who the dad really is, you're the father. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's, but in reality, you don't actually do that by hand. It, you, you put it into a machine, the machine does it. But uh, I, I, it really wasn't, the actual practice itself wasn't hitting in the way that I thought it would, because it does take a lot of time. And you you spend a lot of time alone in a lab by yourself. I'm like this isn't for me. Um, I, I'm I'm definitely a people person, uh, but but I really loved the idea of science. You know that wonderment, that that kind of what if, how, um, and and so I thought to myself, I had this what I I call an early life crisis, where I was like, oh my god, I'm about to leave uni. I thought I wanted to work for uh, a big pharmaceutical company and come up with all these amazing cures and like revolutionary new drugs and, and, and therapies, but it's not for me. So like my, my kind of part of my identity kind of got, got shattered at that, at that stage. Um, I, I don't know why, but I had the kind of foresight to really just kind of sit myself down and ask myself the question, like, so what do you want to do? Because what I could see was that after university or college, as you call it, the, that's the first time that many people um, will experience the world for what it really is. Right. And then you go from, yeah, I'm going to be this. And then you're basically you're in an office and you're like, hmm, this isn't how I plan my life kind of going. So I was like, I don't want to sit in an office all day, or at least if I'm sitting in an office, I want to be, I want to be loving what I'm doing because now this is the rest of my life. And I thought, okay, what are my passions? Well, I like science and I like performing. Boom. And I was like, okay, I suppose I better be a, I, I, at first I thought I'd be a science writer. So maybe I'd give the, the, the science presenting, wildlife presenting a try. So that's when I kind of came to that conclusion that that's where the direction I was going to head. So I was about 21 at the time and just finishing uni. 
Um, so that gives you some context as to where where that kind of drive uh, and direction came from. Then began the whole uh, arduous um, challenge of figuring out how do I get into TV? I don't know anybody in TV. I don't see many people that look like me in TV, especially in wildlife TV. Um, and so, and it's human nature. You're, you're going to give more opportunities to people that you connect with or you, that you have um, a stronger bond with. So as many of the producers are upper middle class white males, they're likely to hire upper class um, white males. So even ladies have a, have a bit of a tricky time getting into that industry, let alone my face, you know, this black guy shows up. I want to be a wildlife TV. Like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that I, I, I really had to hustle and find those opportunities. I, I, I applied for a number of different jobs at the BBC, didn't get them. I actually got my first job at the BBC through a, um, a media charity initiative called um, the next generation. They were looking for the next generation of, of, uh, oh, it was meant to be right. Yeah. Star it was, Trek. yeah just thought about that. <laughs> Um, and so they're looking for the next generation of production assistants. And, you know, I won't go into all of that. Essentially, it was a technical role. And I thought to myself, uh, well, this, this is something actually for your listeners, for your young listeners, or actually for any of you, your listeners that want to make a change in, in their lives in terms of their career. I wanted to be what's called a researcher. That is the, if you want to be in, in TV, that's probably one of the best jobs. You know, you, you're, you start off as a runner and then you progress to a research and that's when you have a lot more editorial input. You, you're working a lot closer with your producers. You get to go on those trips. I just wanted to travel. I was like, this is going to be great. I get to do wildlife TV and I get to travel at the very, at the bare minimum. Um, and so that's what I, I wanted to do. But the role itself was a technical role. And I was like, I'm not sure if I can do this. I was technically minded. I am. I love kind of gadgets and stuff. So I thought to myself, look, Patrick, just just go with it. Accept the role. You've been, you've been, you've gone from three, I think it was 300 applicants down to the final six. And mm. each person got placed in a different production company in the southwest of England. And I managed, uh, I was fortunate enough to get the BBC, the NHU, which is uh, the BBC's arm that make all the wildlife documentaries. So you mentioned David Attenborough. Um, so Planet Earth, Blue Planet, Green Planet, uh, Frozen Planet, all those shows that you know, uh, Discovery and Nat Geo also partner with are made in that hub in Bristol in the southwest of England. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, just do it, see how it goes. You've had this opportunity from 300 down to the final six and then the one that got the BBC. So just, just, just take it. If you can't do it, let them know in three weeks' time, hey, I'm really sorry, this isn't for me. I'd, I'd please can you give the role to someone else who who's more deserving and wants it, got into it. And, um, and I was pretty good and, you know, kind of worked out how to edit or set up an edit for the editors. I was in the machine room. So I wasn't out in the wild. I was literally in like, imagine like a, a, a photo development room kind of thing, sure. not as dark and not as red, but that kind of, that, that kind of um, uh, in, environment in the digital world. And so I was learning about, how that all kind of works. And slowly, slowly, I started telling producers what I wanted to do. And at first, they kind of like, here's another person that wants to be on the screen, doesn't actually care about the subject matter. So you're slowly earning trust. You're slowly demonstrating that you care about the process of making films um, and interested in finding new stories. 
And so I just had to hustle and 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 find anytime I saw a producer that needed help, I'm like, how can I say, demonstrate that I can provide you value? Um, so that's really how I worked my way up from being what's called an edit assistant to being a junior researcher, to being a researcher, and eventually five years later, um, uh, stepping up as an assistant producer. So I was I was content to sorry this is a bit of a long winded story but uh, you know I mean you can you can chop it up right. and edit edit it as 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 you want but nope. you, you mentioned your, your thing. kids it's all going in. <laughs> you mentioned your kids so I wanted to just give a bit more depth and meatiness so then sure. whether it's for you or anyone that's listening you can hopefully that can inspire them um, and so I had all these small opportunities there was a show which was for the deaf and hard of um, for, for the blind and hard of hearing um, and one of the producers like we know that you want to you know get into presenting we think you've got a great voice we wondered if you could be one of the voices in the sh- in this show uh, we can't pay you but you know it's great experience now i was like i would i jumped on it because i knew that if i wanted to gain that experience outside of the situation i would have to pay for it hundreds of pounds to, to be in a booth, to know when to go with a red light cue, how to read the script whilst looking at the images, getting that timing just right. Um, so I jumped on it. And that was, again, gaining trust, learning in an environment that n- many people wouldn't have chosen that. It was a ve- it's a very small sh- niche show. Um, so getting experience there. Uh, I had producers ask me, when you make a TV show, before David Attenborough will come and voice over uh, Frozen Planet or Green Planet, the producers put all the, sh- the show together and then they will put their suggestions of what the n- narration should be. So they'll put them their minds into David Attenborough's mind and they'll write all the, all the word deep in the jungles of Boya. <laughs> you know, in the upper canopy is a law gibbon. <laughs> yeah. and, and so they're writing all the, the, this script and they will send it to the commissioner who is the boss of the channels and he or she will then say okay we need to change some of these sequences in these stories no we don't think david would say that etc but the producer usually has to put their voice on on the on the show to start with what we call scratch commentary now if anybody's listened back to their voice on a voice note or a voicemail if you're not in tv and you don't do it regularly it sounds really weird because how you sound in your head and how you sound outwardly to the world is very different. So most producers don't like doing it. That's probably one of their least favorite jobs. But I, on the other hand, I'll do it. And so I had a few producers say, you know, I, I'm, yep, come come in after work and we'll spend like half an hour, an hour, and you can just voice this. So you'll le- So that, again, just finding all the different ways to learn about the job that I want to do without actually having the job. Um, Fast forward a couple of years later, it turns out that one of the commissioners heard my voice on a, on a on one of these series, on one of these shows, um, and asked, "Whose voice is that?" Oh, it's Patrick. He's a researcher. He wants to get into TV. Have we, has he got a show reel? No. Can we get a show reel for him? No. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And that's how I learned. I I realized this about two years after the fact, but that's how um, that all played into me getting this opportunity to do a show reel, um, which then um, catapulted me, you know, into the place that I am now. So I hope that kind of gives a bit of, 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 of context and a, a bit of a broader understanding of how it happened. There's no magical moment where, you know, I'm, I met so-and-so, you know, the Denzel Washington of, of, um, 
of wildlife TV filmmaking. No, like I, I did work with David Attenborough. Um, it was great to see him work. And you like when when that camera goes on and it's action, David, you're like, oh, David Attenborough. OK, it's like this this glow from heaven just like you know goes from this old man you know yes yes and all of a sudden it's like you know he, he steps into Zom. that you're like ah okay yeah you, you know what you're doing um so you know i didn't have that that moment where someone connected me to another it was just hustle and hard work and looking for the opportunity anything that i could do to increase or better my skill set so that when i finally had the opportunity i was at least semi-prepared uh, I, I took um and so that's how I ended up getting into to, to presenting and hosting Wildlife TV. For anybody that is listening to this, and if you're interested in doing the same thing, whether it's Wildlife TV, whether you want to be an actor, um, whatever it may be, a podcaster, broadcaster, commentator, you have the opportunity now to do it yourself. You don't need to, 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 to get a job in TV production. I think it's very helpful and useful if you can, but in the meantime, Go out and film stuff with your friends. We've now got 4K stabilized cameras in the palm of our hands, which are also uh, universal communication devices. This thing speaks to satellites up in space. And so like we're having this communicate this, this, this podcast now, we can speak to each other from across the world. You can literally film something and upload it onto your all the different platforms. TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn is also a good one. That's got great organic reach. Um, and tell the world about your story. Produce your own content. Make it yourself. And that, I think, is one of the most exciting things about the era that we live in today. Web 2.0, which is now transitioning slowly into Web 3.0. Um, and there's lots and lots of opportunity for people that want to create. I will, I will, I will end my spiel with this, though. <laughs> if you are a aspiring presenter, actor, uh, content creator, let's stick with, with uh, being a TV presenter, a TV host. You are not in the game of being a TV host. And I'll say that again. If you want to be a TV host, you are not in the game of being a TV host. You are in the game of being a producer of content. Once you're able to produce your own content, or at least have the skill set to produce your own content, now you are empowering yourself to be in a stronger position to both have intellectual property that is your own, ownership of the media and of a brand, which then allows you to collaborate with other brands and uh, other content creators. Um, and that will actually, that is what will feed you and push you into the position where then you can be a host because now you are your own producer. You have your team, you have um, your own ideas, which are fueling your your ambition to be a host. So I hope that whoever needed to hear that, um, that it reaches you and, 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 I, and I wish you all the best with your journey. That's awesome. Um, and the other thing that I would add to what you said, because you talked about the hustle, taking the opportunity, getting the skills, you also did something that you were passionate about, right? So you took the opportunity to take a step back and find the thing that you loved, um, even though it wasn't initially what you started out doing, you took that struggle to find the thing that you loved. Um, oh, yeah. so that's, 
that's one of the things I would love to be able to impart to, to my kids. Mm, um, mm. Like, you know, there are things I, I want them to do in life and I want them to, to have a better life than I did, but I also want mm. them to do something that they're passionate about. Oh yeah. It's, it's really important to find that and find the balance. You know, for example, if you, you know, you may have um, some young kids out there that want to be football players, but maybe they aren't actually as good. You know, you've got to have the talent first, or you want to be a basketball player, football player, maybe you don't have the talent or you get injured. But if you enjoyed that sport or that, 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 um, that, that arena, then, you know, maybe you, you focus on different aspects of that sport. You know, maybe you can be a, a lawyer for, for, for professional football players. Maybe you can be a, a physiotherapist. You could be a content creator. Um, there are all sorts of jobs uh, that surround some of our passions. So I think that just to add on to what we're saying there, if there's something that you want to do and, and maybe you can't do it yourself, look at the jobs or the potential jobs around that space and also find people that are good at that thing um, and that can help you and collaborate with you in order to do that. Uh, I, I, I got to say, it's, it's funny because my parents at the time, they thought I was absolutely bonkers because I just left university with a degree in molecular biology um, and cancer biology specifically. And they're like, right, good. Like firstborn, he's done his job, right. Okay. Go out into the world. And, you know, now you can start earning and be an adult, you know, and provide for yourself and hopefully um, help provide for the family as well as my brothers and sisters kind of come up as, uh, um, uh, and get older and, and step out into the real world themselves. And so they're looking at me thinking, what on earth is this guy doing? Because I go from that, going from a top university, top degree in science, cool, that's, that should be a slam dunk, to being a runner in TV, where one of your primary jobs is getting producers cups of tea, getting producers um, their, their lunch, uh, in some cases, if you're in LA, you know, people will tell you this uh, all the time, you know, you're out getting your producers laundry or, you know, helping them with all sorts. And to, to the untrained eye or to the outside eye, you, you, you're thinking that this is a waste of your time. But to those inside, you know that what you're actually doing is you're building trust with your producer and the producers know this as well because they don't know who you are or how good right. you are or, and it's, and, and working in that environment. So it's a people, um, it's a people game, a people's game. It's a, it, it's about that connection that you have with people. And because you're out on these locations on, on set out in the wild with people for a long period of time, you want to at least enjoy each other's company. Um, so, you know, if you ever find yourself in that position, um, don't be deflated. Also recognize that you have something to give and that the producers, whether it's your ideas, um, your excitement, your energy, the fact that you come from a different background, um, that, you, that you're into different things to them, don't shy away from that. Don't try and model yourself on your, the, the people that are managing you or that you're working to. You know, try and understand what they need. Do it as efficiently as possible. You know, you come back with the laundry. Hey, guys, I saw this article in Nat Geo. You guys wanted to do something about storm chasing, right? I just saw this apparently, you know, you know, well, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but but just show that as you're showing them ideas, like, oh, this person is, is providing me with value. So then that time that they can't make that meeting, they're like, right, okay, um, uh, Pat, 
Patrick, we want you to, to, to head out and can you just take some, some notes for the meeting? Yep, sure, of course. Send it to them. Now they're like, yes, this is someone that I can trust because handing over that, that, that first level, that first time they hand over the baton is really hard. We, we as humans find it hard to relinquish control of something that we really care about to people that we don't know. So you have to kind of earn that trust over time. But once it's boom in your hand and you you've done the job well, now they're gonna now they're now they're not gonna let go of you. <laughs> you know, like Brandon is coming with me everywhere. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I, I guess that a, a few bits of uh, a few a few nuggets, hopefully a few gems there from from an old man. <laughs> oh, you're not old. Not too um, old. <laughs> the grays are coming through though. Look. Can you see the gray? Ah, you shaved them off. That doesn't count. Yeah, I have actually, you know. Just a little oh. sprinkling of, of salt and pepper for you today. <laughs> so bring it back to the show. Mm. I have a couple more questions for you and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, you do a lot of discussion about, you know, again, what we see in nature and what's what we can apply to our own lives. And that is against the background and consistent drumbeat of what's happening with endangered species and climate change and all of these other things that are happening in the world that, that we're aware of. Do you feel like there's a reason for us to be optimistic, even with all of those things going on in the background? I think in our, the world that we live in at the moment, sometimes it can be very, hard and tricky to be optimistic. I remember as, um, as a young child, I, and even just growing up, even at like by the time you get to uni, you're thinking, you're looking at all these, th- these developments in, <clears throat> in technology, whether it's, you know, lithium batteries, which uh, are able to store um, far more power than, than the traditional or the nickel based um, alkaline batteries. So that's, so now we have these, miniaturized drones our phones are smaller technology is getting faster and more miniaturized we now have tesla cars or um, uh, uh, electric cars which are rivaling if not better than than traditional combustion engine um fossil fueled cars and you know i remember growing up and thinking like once we get the technology that's what i thought i was like it's the technology that's stopping us. And then you realize that there are different special interest groups and different lobby groups and different um, companies. And basically people have their own interests and it comes down to the dinero, money. And, you know, I kind of, I I try not to, you know, worry myself and be like, they're evil. It just comes down to people don't want to let go of what they worked hard to, 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 to gain, just to let all that money go. That's not going to happen. And I just thought there was going to be so much innovation, certainly coming from the States. And it just hasn't worked out that way. And I think it's not just, you know, it's not just the States. It's, 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 it happens around the world. And I think there's, there's certainly a lot of political pressure that falls into that. Um, and also potentially greed, you know. But I think there is hope and there is cause to be optimistic and this is this is how I'm, I try and look at life nowadays. Um, you know, wh- whatever you want to call them, the old powers, new powers, old money, new money. As long as you can demonstrate value or the financial value of preserving a specific ecosystem, of preserving a species that we do and don't know of, um, I think we stand a chance. 
And that is where a show like Evolve and the whole subject of biomimicry, I think, gets really, really exciting. Because whether you're red or blue, or as one of my um, favorite, um, I call him my business mentor, uh, as Gary Gary V likes to say, Gary Vaynerchuk. If you don't know who he is, please listen to his podcast. He's awesome. Uh, if you're purple, <laughs> you know, he says that we, we need to think more purple. <laughs> uh, I think that biomimicry uh, has the potential to bridge that gap because now what we're seeing is that a lot of these technologies, which are inspired by nature, can literally make you, uh, you know, a whole mountain of cash. Right. And that is what is getting the attention of venture capitalists, um, of investors, angel investors, because they're like, this is actually pretty cool. This there's a lot, there's a lot of money to be made here, and it's innovative. And we're also hitting these, 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 you know, tick marks uh, when it comes to um uh corporate and social respect uh, what's it called um corporate and social responsibility what's the what's the terminology corporate corporate responsibility um i think it's just corporate responsibility ethics uh, yeah when it comes to uh, yeah corporate responsibility and 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 that kind of stuff i think that then then that makes it even more lucrative and more exciting for some of these businesses which maybe in the past wouldn't have engaged with conversations about how do we protect the Amazon rainforest? How do we protect um, the Sonoran Desert? Uh, how do we protect the the waterways of of Montana? You know, like now, now it's because the reason why you're protecting it is because it will provide you with infinite um, uh, revenue. Um, in a way that hasn't been seen before. Uh, I say infinite with a with an asterisk on it, but you, you get my drift. So um, to kind of come back around, um, FYI, I love the States and everything about the States. Please, if you're listening to this, do not send me hate mail. <laughs> so you won't I find out until you get on that no-fly list. No. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that we do have um, reason to be super duper optimistic. And when you look at the stories that we cover, so for example, looking at the the, the fog basking beetles, which can collect water out of thin air. Uh, I believe, if I correct me if I'm wrong, California, Nevada, water is really important. Water capture is, is, is quite a big deal. So now, you know, to all the, the, the listeners that are from those areas, you know, you this beetle that's in the uh, southern part of Africa, in Namibia, in a desert, might be helping you to have more water in coming out of your tap to be able to have those water fights, you know, on that hot summer's day, because we have these devices that can now capture water in a really innovative way. Um, when we look at, uh, I've mentioned squid, I mentioned, mentioned squid ring teeth earlier. Those are the, the kind of serrations on the, um, on the suckers of, mm-hmm. of squids tentacles that allow them to stick onto, to, um, fish that they're hunting without the fish wriggling and slipping away that 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 protein that those squid ring teeth are made out of is both really hard but also has the ability to kind of self-heal so scientists have been able to isolate the gene that codes for this protein and they've been able to synthesize the protein so insert the, the the gene into what's called this is how i remember it, at least you put it into a plasmid which is a circular ring of dna and then you can put that plasmid into bacteria or bacteria will kind of absorb this the, the, uh, if they're in a solution of of these these plasmids um they will absorb the plasmid and then they 
the internal machinery will will spit copy and spit out this protein. So this is what the scientists are doing. They now have this they have this this powdered protein which which is made from squid ring teeth protein. And what they did, it was amazing to see it in the flesh. Was they you can you can do two things. One, you can use it to make really um, uh, sustainable textiles, um, a type of like thread. So they they did this live in 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 the on the show. So you 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 know viewers will will see this for themselves. But you put the protein, the powdered protein, into a solvent, so it dissolves, and then you put it through a machine called a what I believe is called a vat spinner. So this is using pre-existing technology that's used to create, it's either nylon or um, polyester fibers. So it, it's used in the textiles industry anyway. So you don't have to come up with any new device. And this mixture of uh, squid ring teeth protein and the solvent passed through like this extrusion plate. So imagine a sieve with t- lots of tiny, tiny, tiny holes. And so it's pushing it through. And as it pushes through, it goes into the, to the next chain, the next uh, vat, which has a different solution, which takes away that solvent and then the protein starts to coalesce and forms these tiny tiny fine threads these fine filaments and you just pick pick it up and then hook it onto the the spindle and onto the until the onto the roller and all of a sudden you've got this out of nothing out of this liquid this this super strong uh, biodegradable thread which has come from a squid and you don't have to kill any squid because you've right. isolated the, 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 the DNA they, they know what the, the genome is. And so you just, you just use bacteria. Um, so again, a, a, an innovative way of creating textiles because cotton is extremely, um, it t- takes a, a huge amount of water to create any one t-shirt. So again, it goes back to the scarcity of water, which is I think by 2050, it's either half or two thirds of the world's population is going to be living with water scarcity. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about like poor developing countries. We're talking about all of us. It's a we problem now that we're facing. So yeah, you can have these cool squid-inspired threads. Um, they you can also use it to create a, a type of glue. So I think m- many glues are plastic-based. So again, this is also helping to overcome the, the, the plastic pollution um, that, that we have in, in the oceans. Sure. And we do this again live in, in the lab where um, the doctor, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Malik Demerel, fantastic guy, he ended up giving us these squid hats <laughs> at the end of the, sh- of the when we finished filming. It's so funny. He's a great guy, great character. And um, so you put this, this squid glue, the squid-inspired glue onto like a piece of fabric, spray some water on it, put another um, piece of fabric on, and just apply heat and pressure. So we had an iron just on the desk, you know, and then let it dry out. And it's super strong. This glue, like one, I had the sound guy on one end and then um, our assistant producer, she was on the other end. I'm like, pull guys, pull. We're pulling, pulling, literally couldn't, couldn't, uh, uh, you know, break the bonds of this, of this glue. But then the cool thing was that you, I, I don't, I, I'm giving all the way the cool stories. You put the, this, this glue or this, this, this fabric that was glued together, you just dip it into a solution of vinegar, household vinegar, and the bonds just break so, like yeah. that. And so you've got these amazing, amazing, uh, these incredible examples of where, where animals out in the wild have 
either come up with solutions to certain problems, which we now can be inspired by to create new um, technologies, new products, which you can then sell more easily and also helps to protect the planet. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think that a show like Evolve and the, the wider kind of um, subject of biomimicry is one that's here to stay. And I think that people, it's, it's going to excite a lot of people for sure. That's awesome. I want to be able to rant there. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I like, I like the, the in-depth knowledge that you have and, and what you're, so I was, I didn't want to spoil too much from the show. Cause I want people no. to experience that stuff for themselves. Cause <laughs> some of this stuff is like, as I watch it again, your excitement for what you're seeing mm. is kind of what draws me into the show. Um, yeah. Patrick, I want to say thank you again. Um, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, yeah, too, and I, I really hope the show is a success. Um, so we're talking about Evolve, and that's streaming right now on Curiosity. So folks can go out and watch that right now. That's right. It's uh, Evolve on Curiosity Stream. Uh, all six episodes are out now to view. There's something for everybody, for kids, for adults. Um, I think everybody will love it. If you're interested to find, if you want to find out more about me personally, one of my major platforms is Instagram. So it's Patrick underscore IE, which is for A-R-Y-E-E. Um, you can find me also on Twitter. Um, I'm also moving into YouTube content creation. So if you want to follow my channel, it's Patrick Goes Wild. I'll be posting some really interesting, um, fun videos, uh, probably from the summer and fall onwards this year. So uh, please do get in touch. Um, it'd be great to connect with all of you. It's fantastic. You got a new follower. So hey, nice. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, Brandon. Same. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.